Hi, I'm Dave Bush on KZ1O, and this is 99hobbies.com. Hi, this is Dave, and welcome to 99 Hobbies. I have a conversation here with uh, Rich Mitchell in 3iii from a November uh, conversation that we had. I, I was fascinated by his article in QST, which is an award-winning article. He got the cover award, which basically means it was the best one in the whole issue. Or at least that's what the uh, readers said. I had to talk to him. He was talking about building kits and how you can use it as a learning experience. And the whole concept was fascinating to me. It's uh, it's easy to build something, connect point A to point B. But Rich's idea was that you can do this and basically do a subassembly test of everything, and there's not going to be any surprises when you hook it up. So with so much fanfare, I'm going to stop talking, and here's Rich. This was fun. Hey, Rich. I'm glad that uh, we had a chance to hook up. It sounds like you've been kind of busy lately. Yeah, uh this especially uh, trying to answer all the questions that I've been getting from the articles really been keeping me busy. Um, yeah, but it's it's been a great experience. Well, it, it, it's um, when I looked at the article in QST, it was um, you know it's not a really big thing, but it's like what a you know what a great thing to put together, and it works, and it's simple, and it's it's a cool thing to do. But what you did was you approached it from a different point of view. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had found that uh, oftentimes you start putting together the, uh, kits, and by the time you get to the kit, the end of the kit, uh, you apply power to it or whatever, and you really don't know whether it's going to work or not. And if you approach it stage by stage, you get, you have a good eye, a feel as to how the kit is going along, and and you know what's working. And if something's not working, you can fix it on on the spot so that by the time you get to the end of the project, hey, you've got something that's going to work when you try it. Well, uh, you actually used the term uh, soldering robot. I thought that was kind of funny because I've, I've built some things, and, you know, the first time you apply power to it, it goes up in smoke. It's like, well, now what do I do? And you're... Your approach to this was was excellent. It was it was a really good way to look at it and to to learn each, you know, each part of the um, each stage of the process. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's interesting. Uh, you had mentioned the soldering robot, and I began to think a little bit more about it. And the soldering robot is not really a bad thing. It might be. Uh, in my view, anyway, one of perhaps, let's say, three stages of uh, kit building. Uh, yeah. The first stage is um, the soldering robot, where you get good at soldering. You might call that a learn-to-build stage. Uh -huh. And then what I talked about in the article was the build-to-learn stage. Instead of just learning how to solder and becoming a good robot, now you start trying to understand what it is you're building and understanding each piece as you build it. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, you may get to the spot where you can build from scratch, where you really know you know enough so that you can actually design something and go ahead and uh, uh, put together a circuit and actually uh, make a QSO with something that you actually designed from scratch. So uh, being a soldering robot really isn't that bad of a thing. 
in my own experience, uh, I find that um, often I go back to being a soldering robot. Let me give you an example of that uh, sure. right yeah. now. Um, I'm building a K2. Uh, last night and this morning, over those, uh, you know, uh, an hour or so last night and maybe an hour this morning, I ended up putting in 55 capacitors in a row. <laughs> what okay. circuits did those go to? <laughs> Who knows? But that's what Ellicraft said in their manual, you know, build it this way. And the K2, you know, 629 bucks for the kit. You don't want to screw it up. So right. <laughs> if you're a good soldering robot, hey, you may end up with a nice K2 down the road. And it's probably a little bit complex to try to do a build to learn thing and screw up and <laughs> and blow 600 bucks right there. That's, that's Whereas amazing. some of these smaller kits, they're much more uh, inclined and, uh, well, affordable to be uh, a build to learn thing. And for the for instance, the Pixie, uh, Pixie 2, that's a $10 kit. So if you do screw it up, uh, you haven't lost that much. But secondly, it's so simple, it's hard to screw up. Well, you know what? Why don't, why don't we take a couple steps back and say, well, why would you want to build, you know, a kit in the first place? You know, HRO is right down the street. Why, why don't you just go buy something? Well, <laughs> that is kind of an interesting question. It's like, uh, probably a similar question to that to me is, why don't you do a lot more sideband than CW? <laughs> but I guess I came into this whole thing uh, when I first uh, thought about ham radio and all that. Mm -hmm. And CW seemed to be the thing. And I have, um, one of the things I've uh, liked to do was to collect some of these how to become amateur radio or radio amateur I think is the right title that the ARL put out many years ago the first one that I came across uh, and then they have their understanding amateur radio mm -hmm. and these are books trying to tell someone who's new to the hobby hey here's how you can become a radio amateur and what do they do in there they tell you how to build uh, not a kit I go out and get parts and, and drill holes. <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> and that, that's very that's, true. That, that's where ham radio started, <laughs> building your stuff from scratch. You know, now if we get along to the point where all we do is, is work on stuff that we buy at HRO or maybe already built off of eBay or something like that, we're really missing a little bit of our heritage. Plus the fact that, you know, we're not just operators. We're, um, I don't know, maybe engineers too, uh, too high a term. We're eighth, let's say eighth grade science project people going wild, just having fun, learning <laughs> stuff. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I mean, it's like people that, you know, twist wires together. I think that 99% of the people on the planet have never, you know, twisted wires together to get something done. And uh, we have, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the the, the great thing is, uh, for instance, uh, when this K2 is done, it's going to be replacing an Argosy 2, a nice 10 tech radio, but I didn't build it, so, you know, it's expendable. I, it's <laughs> actually going to be replacing a Hot Water 9. Now, that's a nice kit, but I bought the kit already built, so what I'm looking for is something that yeah, that I have built that I can I can use, but... 
as I said in the article, nothing gets as great as contacting somebody on a simple piece of hardware that you put to un- put together and you understood how how it went together, like uh, that first contact I made with the Pixie Two, or some of the contacts I made with the thing I called the Neofish. Well, um, actually, you mentioned the the article you're, uh, that you're published in QST. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that. And also, um, when you and I had uh, talked via email before, you, you talked about your website. We're going to put all this in the show notes, but I have like seven or eight or nine different things I want to talk about. Um, tell me some more about uh, building building a kit and learning from it. Um, can you talk about a few things that um, you, you mentioned in that article? Instead of being a soldering robot about how to uh, learn whether it's working or whether it's not working. Well, the, this kind of kind of thing comes back from some of these old uh, radio technician books uh, that you can get in the past. Back when ra- radios weren't throwaway things, and mm-hmm. they would have to troubleshoot them. And basically, uh, if you look at some of those books, what they would try to do would be with an already built radio that wasn't working right make sure they had the audio part working and then back up through uh, IFs and everything else and your audio, always listening to the audio to see if things were working. Yep. And if you take that approach and go to, go to your kits, uh, you, you can uh, either build them that way or in the case, uh, if you read in the article about the NN1G um, radio I had built over a decade ago and I shorted it out and just kind of gave up on it and stuck it in the closet until I started getting getting into this uh, build to learn thing and I said hey I'll bet I can figure out how this works so I said let's see if the audio works and I started listening and I got the audio working then I would back up through the chain until uh, I found parts that were bad replaced them and kept working until I got everything working and voila I was listening to uh, CW on 20 meters at the end of the process so it's it's a you know a way to approach broken things as as well as a way to build things in a logical order where you can test each step you know so that there is uh, you know no moment of truth because it's been as I said in the article a process of truth you know what you're doing you know that the little chunk or uh, a section that you have built is working properly and you have a way to test it, then you move on and add something to it, building it modularly rather than the whole thing at one shot. Well, I, I love that, and I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you. Um, it sounds like you're an electrical engineer. <laughs> and the answer is no, I'm not. I, I do program for a living. Uh-huh. So I, I, I also work with uh, some... Uh, uh, languages uh, such as uh, Java and have in the past with Smalltalk, where you design thing mo- things modularly. So you get a section working, then you add to that section, and then you add. You're doing the same thing with hardware here. You know, building a module, making sure it works, and then adding to it, and making sure that works, so that you're always you always have something that works before you move on to the next thing. And that seems to me a nice logical way to build a kit, although, like I say, on something like a K2 or something, it's just a little bit overwhelming to try to build it that way, and you don't really know (laughs) what the designer had in mind for everything going on there. 
<laughs> that that makes it a little bit tough, um, not knowing what you're supposed to do. But at least the thing is, when when they put down the directions, you know, solder this to this. Um, again, it gets back to that thing about uh, being a robot. But if you want to learn from their design, um, I, I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and and well, the the thing you might say about the K two is even though you probably won't learn a whole lot through building, if you screwed up. They're going to have you go through uh, a troubleshooting regimen, uh, signal tracing through it. And if you start doing that, I'm sure you would learn a whole lot. Yeah. So, you know, there's a good advantage to that, as well as the bad advantage of, hey, now you've got a broken radio that you've got to get fixed. Yeah, you learn some good things and some bad things about your your uh, uh, kit building ability. <laughs> well, uh, most most kits that that you know the transmitter kits I've seen the you know the tuna tins and stuff like that are for 40 meter CW um, do you think do you think that's enough I mean you know you're gonna have a really expensive receiver to listen to people responding to your uh, tuna tin call on 40 meters or I mean is it is it really fun to build something uh, like a, say let's say a 40 meter transceiver well I think it it is a lot of fun I remember when I built the well, the, the Tunatin 2 that I took an old, I don't know if you remember the Neophyte receiver, and I think they now have a new upgraded Neophyte receiver, which is basically a NE602 with an LM386 <laughs> amplifier chip. But I had an old one of those, and I married it with the Tunatin 2 and let the uh, Tunatin 2's... Uh, uh, oscillator circuit provide uh, uh, the you know a, as the local oscillator for the neophyte, so the two were kind of locked together, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you where you were listening, and the problem is you couldn't move too much because it was all fixed frequency. But making contacts with that, especially the first couple of contacts I made were in New Hampshire, and you're saying, wow, you know, this thing's making New Hampshire. Georgia was like the next one. And, you know, here I am in Maryland, so that's just kind of cool. It's funny because uh, I was was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, we have cell phones and stuff, and I I can call any place in the country I want to with a, you know, push of a button. But there was a time when... You know, I ran upstairs and I told my parents that I talked to somebody, you know, four or five states away, and I and I wonder if we've lost that magic that we used to have. <laughs> I, maybe well, we have. <laughs> well, part of part of I think you know the magic is if if you're doing uh, and and I don't know if you do much with QRP and things like that, but if you don't go in there with you know a thousand watts out and all this, if you're working with maybe some of these small rigs that you've built by hand, let's say it's an S, uh, uh, Small Wonder Plus or some, or a Pixie 2 if, if you want to go to the, you know, <laughs> smallest, and you make that contact, it is such a feeling of accomplishment. You you, you do that with, with uh, I don't know, let's say if I had my Argosy running at 50 watts or something, that's no big deal. But to be able to do this, especially if you knew that, uh, the guy came back to you and, uh, he was dead on your frequency so you couldn't hear him because of, of, you know, he was zero beating you. So you end up putting your finger on the crystal to kind of drag it down a little <laughs> bit so you could hear him. It's just kind of neat to be able to do things that way. Well, you mentioned that I, um, and, and I'll tell our listeners here that, uh, this, this interview that, that you've graciously, um, 
given to me is in the middle of the sweepstakes in 2007. And I have to say that about a quarter of the people I've talked to are given the QRP uh, signal. Um, I've been working 40 meters CW, and about a quarter of them have been QRP, which I guess means 5 watts or less. It's like, oh my god, you know, I have the, the bulb in the light over my head is, is 100 watts or 60 or something, but it's, it's more power than these guys are putting out, and, and I'm hearing them just fine. And uh, yeah. it sounds like you're a qrp yourself. Well, the last two field days that our club has done, uh, we have decided we actually we activated uh, uh, an, an EOC, but we did it with QRP levels and battery power. And we have made a whole bunch of contacts, uh, mostly CW, but uh, the last uh, field day, a friend and I were kind of up on the slope there, and we were working five watts out on sideband mm-hmm. on uh, 80 and 40, and we, we made like, uh, I think it was well over 100 on each band. Wow. That's, I mean, if you think about the, the power levels we're talking about here, it's battery-powered and, and low power, more, um, more low power than most people even think about. Um, it's amazing, and when this kind of stuff happens, whether it was Hurricane Katrina or the tsunami and stuff, it's like ham radio always comes through. It's like these, you know, these guys show up with with batteries on their backpack, and they and they get it done. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. And uh, you know, it's playing with you know maybe even low power field days and things like that that really get you ready. And, and you sharpen your operating ability and your ability to fix things in the field if you have to so that you're ready uh, for the emergencies like that. Well, yeah, and, and I was going to ask you, do you, do you think that um, ham radio has kept up with, you know, technology? I mean, we have cell phones, we have all this stuff, and usually people think about uh, ham operators having a, you know, a basement full of, of rack mount equipment and stuff. Um, do you think that ham operators have... have kept up with with uh, technology uh i think so uh well the, the cool thing is is if you don't want to keep up with technology uh you can be operating with with two brigs and and the old-fashioned way but one of the things that i have uh gotten interested in myself is something to find radio and uh this is kind of where the future is going and uh one one of the uh, kits that I've been playing with, and this was also a ten dollar kit, um, was is the kit that uh, Tony Parks uh, provides, uh, the Soft Rock Lite, and that's the receiver version only. But uh, I was able to put together uh, a, a presentation for our club, and then we also decided to do the presentation at uh, the Hamfest that we had last weekend. We had a number of people hang around, and we actually did it at noon, which for Hamfest nowadays is almost after it's all done, but we had like 20 or 30 people show up, mm-hmm. and we talked about how we would build one of these soft rock lights and do it in a stage-by-stage, build-to-learn style mm-hmm. so that you understood, uh, let's get the oscillator going, and let's see how some of these digital things like flip-flops work to divide the signal <laughs> down, uh, right. that sort of a thing, until we get the quadrant, you know, the the, the in-phase and the quadrature signal out, and then feed it into your sound card. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's awesome. So um, you had a good turnout for that? 
Well, uh, I think we did, especially since uh, we couldn't get access to the room we wanted to do it in until noon, and you know, <laughs> usually about uh, 11 o'clock anymore at Hamfest. Vendors are even beginning to, at least tailgaters are certainly starting to wrap up their stuff and and uh, think about heading home. Uh, and we had uh, 20 or 30 people show up, and uh, we talked about it, and we went through the demo. We tested the various stages as we we built this soft rock uh, light uh, receiver. And of course, the interesting thing about the soft rock. Uh, is uh, there's also the transmitter, uh, uh, well, transceiver kit that you can get. Now that's up in the 30s of bucks, but still, uh, here you have uh, uh, a kit that not only the, these aren't CW. Remember, these mm-hmm. are simply taking uh, the signal in and putting it into uh, an in phase and a quadrature signal that's being run into your sound card. Your computer does all the work, and then if you're transmitting, the computer does all the work and simply sends back out the two signals, the in-phase and the quadrature. So whatever your computer wants to do, that's what you're listening to, whether it's PSK, whether it's sideband, whether it's CW, whether it's FM, all that, this little kit that you put together can do anything that your software can do. That's why it's the software-defined radio. Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm thinking that that some of our listeners here are going to think uh, that's not really something I want to. I don't want to be an electrical engineer, but that's not the case. What you're saying is that you can put um, a certain amount of effort into this, and then you know let the computer do the rest of it, and you can still have the fun, right? Right, and uh, the the cool thing about if you're getting into uh, software-defined radio, is uh, like my buddy who was, uh, he did like the second half of the presentation. Basically, he set up his laptop there, and he said, okay, let's start out. And he puts uh, a program called Rat Rocky on there. And he, he starts showing how Rocky works. He says, well, let's say I'm tired of this radio. I want a completely new radio. He switches <laughs> to a different program. Now you have a totally different radio using the same hardware in and these are all free software that you download from the internet and he went to five different radios that he had running on windows platforms and i had uh one that was running on a linux platform and there's a couple of others there these are you know free downloadable things that you know <laughs> you, you pick the ones you like and if you don't like it tomorrow you download another one yeah, it sounds like a a brand new era of experimentation. If somebody, you know, if somebody is like tired of doing one particular thing, it's like, well, let me check this out. And it sounds like a, it, it's a, a brand new frontier. Yeah, I I, I think so, and uh, I'm I'm just uh, fascinated by by how it works. And uh, of course, part of the thing is is uh, you want to have a computer that has a halfway decent sound card usually. And mm-hmm. I've gone out and gotten some. Uh, better sound cards. I got some off of eBay and so forth, but because the better the sound card you have, the more of the signal you can see. But the coolest thing would be, like, if I were to turn on my, uh, soft rock now and put the Rocky program on, I would have the spectrum going across, uh, well, it's probably a little too late for that now, but I would, uh, had I done it a little earlier today, I would have seen a spectrum that may be 48, uh, kilohertz wide or, or wider than that, depending on my sound card, mm-hmm. of all the signals of the sweepstakes going by. 
<laughs> and I could record those to a wave file, and then uh, at my leisure later on, go back and look at that whole spectrum and pick any signal that I wanted to listen to on there, and and listen to it, you know, down down the road a ways, you know, after the fact, but you you still have captured the whole thing. You probably would have heard me trying to call all these people that uh, don't answer me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a great way to go. And uh, one of the things that well, the Yubaki program in particular has is is a sideways waterfall that's going across, and it's crisp enough that if the person is sending it, let's say less than maybe thirty words a minute. Mm-hmm. You can actually see the the dots and dashes coming across the screen. And for me, when I'm looking for a rag chew, I just look at the spectrum there, and I look for, and you can they stand right out, uh, a C and a Q, and, a, you know, multiple times going across, and, you say, and all you do is click on that one, and then you're, voila, in, in a Q cell with them. Oh, that's awesome. And the thing is that um, a lot of times people are thinking that, well, you know, I don't want to download new software on my PC and have to learn how to use it, but it, it uh, essentially, in, in this case, would make it so that um, they would find somebody that they could have a, a rag shoe with in CWU, whether a CW or a voice or whatever, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, if, if they're interested in the, soft, in, in the software-defined radio, probably uh, the Rocky program is the simplest and most intuitive. Uh, others, uh, one of the ones that I was playing with on Linux, it was designed not so much for QSOs, but for EME, picking out weak mm. signals and, and pulling that out of the mud. And, where and let, you let's, let's talk about a little bit about EME and uh, what does that mean and so forth. Oh, sorry, okay, Earth, Moon, Earth uh, transmissions. And, and what, <laughs> and what does that what mean? This, I mean, <laughs> what, what is EME and Okay, well, I, I have not really ever, I haven't gotten into it, but that's where uh, you would transmit uh, whatever signal, uh, you know, whatever uh, frequency you happen to be on at the moon, and then the receiving station would try to try to um, capture the bounce from the moon uh, so that you're making that uh, Earth-Moon-Earth round trip rather than you using the ionosphere as your reflectant. So you're, you're bouncing uh, a signal off the moon like it's a big billboard up there, right? Yeah, and, and <laughs> of course the, the problem with that is it's, the, the signals are very weak after all that uh, mileage, if you want to put it that yeah. way, plus all, all the, the noise and everything else. And that's where some of the software-defined radio, uh, uh, at least the, the one program called LINRAD that I was playing with was used to really be able to dig signals right out of the mud so that you mm. could hear them. Oh, wow. So, you know, specialized, you know, very cool things going on there. Yeah, that's... Um I, I, I've been taking notes here while we've been talking. I have a lot of stuff I'm going to have to uh, get on the web to uh, learn about. Rich, I need to, um, when we're done talking here, I'm going to get a bunch of uh, links that I can put in the show notes here where people can uh, follow up on this. I, I do have to say uh, right now, thank you so much for uh, joining us here at 99 Hobbies. This has been wonderful. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, uh asking me i i do appreciate it it's, it's just great to be able to share with people uh you know uh, i guess my love for the for, for the not just sport but you know the public service of uh ham radio 
Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things that uh, keeps coming up whenever I talk to people. It's like, um, you guys are busy, you guys are doing all this stuff, you know, with ham radio and like a uh, hundred other um, endeavors. And uh, it, it means so much to me that you've taken the time to uh, to let me talk to you. So uh, thanks a lot, and <laughs> 73 Rich. Well, thank you. 73, and from the uh, QRP perspective, 72s as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs>